Hey, it's Namona. Just some quick housekeeping things before we start today's episode. This is the beginning of book two, so if you haven't read or listened to book one of Metal March, you might want to start at the beginning, or you'll be dreadfully, dreadfully lost. I also want to remind you that I have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash firesideflock. If you want to join, you can join just to simply help me out, feel my caffeine addiction, and other such housekeeping things like helping me get better equipment, or uh, if you want to donate a little more, you can help with picking new books. Since this book will be wrapping up soon, hopefully, uh, we should be able to pick out a new book soon, and I could definitely use some options and opinions. Also, I am affiliated with Drink Poggers, which is an energy drink brand. Um, if you wanted to look into that, they also have Sleep drinks, which is really cool because I can't tolerate caffeine at all. Um, so I'm definitely looking to the Acai Berry Sleep Powder. It is on the way. I'm super excited about it, and hopefully you guys are into it too. If you want to help and purchase some drinky drinks for you, you can go to drinkpoggers.com slash nimgoat. That's drinkpoggers.com slash n-y-m-g-o-a-t. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Book 2. Old and Young. Chapter 13. Consequence of what he had heard from Fred, Mr. Vincy determined to speak with Mr. Bulstrode in his private room at the bank at half past one, when he was usually free from other callers. But a visitor had come in at one o'clock, and Mr. Bulstrode had so much to say to him that there was little chance of the interview being over in half an hour. The banker's speech was fluent, but it was also copious, and he used up an appreciable amount of time in brief meditative pauses. Do not imagine his sickly aspect to have been of the yellow, black-haired sort, he had a pale blonde skin, thin, gray, besprinkled brown hair, light gray eyes, and a large forehead. Loud men called his subdued tone an undertone, and sometimes implied that it was inconsistent with openness, though there seems to be no reason why a loud man should not be given to concealment of anything except his own voice, unless it can be shown that Holy Writ has placed the seat of candor in the lungs. Mr. Bulstrode had also a deferential bending attitude in listening, and an apparently fixed attentiveness in his eyes, which made those persons who thought themselves worth hearing infer that he was seeking the utmost improvement from their discourse. Others, who expected to make no great figure, disliked this kind of moral lantern turned on them. If you're not proud of your cellar, there is no thrill of satisfaction in seeing your guest hold up his wine glass to the light and look judicial. Such joys are reserved for conscious merit. Hence, Mr. Bulstrode's close attention was not agreeable to the publicans and sinners in Middlemarch. It was attributed by some to his being a Pharisee, and by others to his being evangelical. Less superficial reasoners among them wished to know who his father and grandfather were, observing that five and twenty years ago nobody had ever heard of a Bulstrode in Middlemarch. To his present visitor, Lydgate, the scrutinizing look was a matter of indifference. He simply formed an unfavorable opinion of the banker's constitution and concluded that he had an eager, inward life with little enjoyment of tangible things. "'I shall be exceedingly obliged if you will look in on me here occasionally, Mr. Lydgate,' the banker observed after a brief pause. "'If, as I dare to hope, I have the privilege of finding you a valuable coadjutor in the interesting matter of hospital management, there will be many questions which we shall need to discuss in private.' As to the new hospital, which is nearly finished, I shall consider what you have said about the advantages of the special destination for fevers. The decision will rest with me, 
for though Lord Medlicote has given the land and timber for the building, he is not disposed to give his personal attention to the object. There are few things better worth the pains in a provincial town like this, said Lydgate. A fine fever hospital, in addition to the old infirmary, might be the nucleus of a medical school here, when once we get our medical reforms. And what would do more for medical education than the spread of such schools over the country? A born provincial man who has a grain of public spirit as well as a few ideas should do what he can to resist the rush of everything that is a little better than common towards London. Any valid professional aims may often find a freer, if not a richer, field in the provinces. One of Lydgate's gifts was a voice habitually deep and sonorous, yet capable of becoming very low and gentle at the right moment. About his ordinary bearing, there was a certain fling, a fearless expectation of success, confidence in his own powers and integrity much fortified by contempt for petty obstacles or seductions, of which he had had no experience. But this proud openness was made lovable by an expression of unaffected goodwill. Mr. Bulstrode perhaps liked him the better for the difference between them in pitch and manners. He certainly liked him the better, as Rosamond did, for being a stranger in Middlemarch. One can begin so many things with a new person, even begin to be a better man. I shall rejoice to furnish your zeal with fuller opportunities, Mr. Bulstrode answered. I mean, by confiding to you the superintendence of my new hospital, should a mature knowledge favor that issue, for I am determined that so great an object shall not be shackled by our two physicians. Indeed, I am encouraged to consider your advent to this town as a gracious indication that a more manifest blessing is now to be awarded to my efforts, which have hitherto been much withstood. With regard to the old infirmary, we have gained the initial point, I mean your election, and now I hope you will not shrink from incurring a certain amount of jealousy and dislike from your professional brethren by presenting yourself as a reformer. I will not profess bravery, said Lydgate, smiling, but I acknowledge a good deal of pleasure in fighting, and I should not care for my profession if I did not believe that better methods were to be found and enforced there as well as everyone else. The standard of that profession is low in Middlemarch, my dear sir, said the banker. I mean in knowledge and skill, not in social status, for our medical men are most of them connected with respectable townspeople here. My own imperfect health has induced me to give some attention to those palliative resources which the divine mercy has placed within our reach. I have consulted eminent men in the metropolis, and I am painfully aware of the backwardness under which medical treatment labors in our provincial districts. Yes, with our present medical rules and education, one must be satisfied now and then to meet with a fair practitioner. As to all the higher questions which determine the starting point of a diagnosis, as to the philosophy of medical evidence, any glimmering of these can only come from a scientific culture of which country practitioners have usually no more notion than the man in the moon. Mr. Bulstrode, bending and looking intently, found the form which Lydgate had given to his agreement not quite suited to his comprehension. Under such circumstances, a judicious man changes the topic and enters on ground where his own gifts may be more useful. I'm aware, he said, that the peculiar bias of medical ability is towards material means. Nevertheless, Mr. Lydgate, I hope we shall not vary in sentiment as to a measure in which you were not likely to be actively concerned, but in which your sympathetic concurrence may be an aid to me. You recognize, I hope, the existence of spiritual interests in your patients? Certainly I do, but those words are apt to cover different meanings to different minds. Precisely. And on such subjects, wrong teaching is as fatal as no teaching. 
Now, a point which I have much at heart to secure is a new regulation as to clerical attendance at the old infirmary. The building stands in Mr. Fairbrother's parish. You know Mr. Fairbrother? I've seen him. He gave me his vote. I must call to thank him. He seems a very bright, pleasant little fellow, and I understand he's a naturalist. Mr. Fairbrother, my dear sir, is a man deeply painful to contemplate. I suppose there is not a clergyman in this country who has greater talents. Mr. Bulstrode paused and looked meditative. I have not yet been pained by finding any excessive talent in Middlemarch, said Lydgate, bluntly. What I desire, Mr. Bulstrode continued, looking still more serious, is that Mr. Fairbrother's attendance at the hospital should be superseded by the appointment of a chaplain, of Mr. Tyke, in fact, and that no other spiritual aid should be called in. As a medical man, I could have no opinion on such a point unless I knew Mr. Tyke, and even then I should require to know the cases in which he was applied. Lydgate smiled, but he was bent on being circumspect. Of course you cannot enter fully into the merits of this measure at present, but... Here Mr. Bulstrode began to speak with a more chiseled emphasis. The subject is likely to be referred to the medical board at the infirmary, and what I trust I may ask of you is that in virtue of the cooperation between us, which I now look forward to, you will not, uh, so far as you are concerned, be influenced by my opponents in this matter. I hope I shall have nothing to do with clerical disputes, said Lydgate. The path I've chosen is to work well in my own profession. My responsibility, Mr. Lydgate, is of a broader kind. With me, indeed, this question is one of sacred accountableness. Whereas with my opponents, I have good reason to say that it is an occasion for gratifying a spirit of worldly opposition. But I shall not therefore drop one iota of my convictions, or cease to identify myself with that truth which an evil generation hates. I have devoted myself to this object of hospital improvement, but I will boldly confess to you, Mr. Lydgate, that I should have no interest in hospitals if I believed that nothing more was concerned therein than the cure of mortal diseases. I have another ground of action— and in the face of persecution, I will not conceal it. Mr. Bulstrode's voice had become a loud and agitated whisper as he said the last words. There we certainly differ, said Lydgate, but he was not sorry that the door was now opened and Mr. Vincey was announced. That florid, sociable personage was become more interesting to him since he had seen Rosamond. Not that, like her, he had been weaving any future in which their lots were united, but a man naturally remembers a charming girl with pleasure, and is willing to dine where he may see her again. Before he took leave, Mr. Vincey had given that invitation which he had been in no hurry about, for Rosamond at breakfast had mentioned that she thought her uncle Featherstone had taken the new doctor into great favor. Mr. Bulstrode, alone with his brother-in-law, poured himself out a glass of water, and opened a sandwich box. Can I persuade you to adopt my regimen, Vincey? No, no. I've no opinion of that system. Life wants padding, said Mr. Vincey, unable to omit his portable theory. However, he went on, accenting the word, as if to dismiss all irrelevance, what I came here to talk about was a little affair of my young scapegrace, Fred's. That is a subject on which you and I are likely to take quite as different views as on diet, Vincey. I hope not this time. Mr. Vincey was resolved to be good-humored. The fact is, it's about a whim of old Featherstone's. Somebody has been cooking up a story out of spite, and telling it to the old man to try to set him against Fred. He's very fond of Fred and is likely to do something handsome for him. Indeed, he has as good as told Fred that he means to leave him his land, and that makes other people jealous. Vincy, I must repeat that you will not get any concurrence from me as to the course you've pursued with your eldest son. 
It was entirely from worldly vanity that you destined him for the church. The family of three sons and four daughters, you were not warranted in devoting money to an expensive education which has succeeded in nothing but in giving him extravagant idle habits. You were now reaping the consequences. To point out other people's errors was a duty that Mr. Bulstrode rarely shrank from, but Mr. Vincy was not equally prepared to be patient. When a man has the immediate prospect of being mayor and is ready, in the interests of commerce, to take up a firm attitude on politics generally, he has naturally a sense of his importance to the framework of things, which seems to throw questions of private conduct into the background. And this particular reproof irritated him more than any other. It was eminently superfluous to him to be told that he was reaping the consequences, but he felt his neck under Bulstrode's yoke, and though he usually enjoyed kicking, he was anxious to refrain from that relief. As to that, Bulstrode, it's no use going back. I'm not one of your pattern men, and I don't pretend to be. I couldn't foresee everything in the trade. There wasn't a finer business in Middlemarch than ours, and the lad was clever. My poor brother was in the church, and would have done well. I'd got preferment already, but that stomach fever took him off, else he might have been a dean by this time. I think I was justified in what I tried to do for Fred. If you come to religion, it seems to me a man shouldn't want to carve out his meat to an ounce beforehand. One must trust a little to Providence and be generous. It's a good British feeling to try and raise your family a little. In my opinion, it's a father's duty to give his sons a fine chance. I don't wish to act otherwise than as your best friend, Vincy, when I say that what you've been uttering just now is one mass of worldliness and inconsistent folly. Very well, said Mr. Vincy, kicking in spite of resolutions. I never profess to be anything but worldly, and what's more, I don't see anybody else who is not worldly. I suppose you don't conduct business on what you call unworldly principles. The only difference I see is that one worldliness is a little bit honester than another. This kind of discussion is unfruitful, Vincy, said Mr. Bulstrode, who, finishing his sandwich, had thrown himself back in his chair and shaded his eyes as if weary. You had some more particular business. Yes, yes. The long and short of it is, somebody had told Old Featherstone, giving you as the authority, that Fred had been borrowing, or trying to borrow, money on the prospect of his land. Of course, you never said any such nonsense. But the old fellow will insist on it that Fred should bring him a denial in your handwriting. That is, just a bit of a note saying you don't believe a word of such stuff, either of his having borrowed or tried to borrow in such a fool's way. I suppose you can have no objection to do that. Pardon me. I have an objection. I am by no means sure that your son, in his recklessness and ignorance, I will use no severer word, has not tried to raise money by holding out his future prospects, or even that someone may not have been foolish enough to supply him on so vague a presumption. There is plenty of such lax money lending as of other folly in the world. But Fred gives me his honor that he's never borrowed money on the pretense of any understanding about his uncle's land. He is not a liar. I don't want to make him better than he is. I have blown him up well. Nobody can say I wink at what he does, but he's not a liar, and I should have thought, but I may be wrong, that there was no religion to hinder a man from believing the best of a young fellow, when you don't know worse. It seems to me it would be a poor sort of religion to put a spoke in his wheel by refusing to say you don't believe such harm of him as you've got no good reason to believe. I am not at all sure that I should be befriending your son by smoothing his way to the future possession of Featherstone's property cannot regard wealth as a blessing to those who use it simply as a harvest for this world. You do not like to hear these things, Vincy, but on this occasion I feel called upon to tell you that I have no motive for furthering such a disposition of property as that which you refer to. 
I do not shrink from saying that it will not tend to your son's eternal welfare or to the glory of God. Why, then, should you expect me to pen this kind of affidavit, when it has no object but to keep up a foolish partiality and secure a foolish bequest? If you mean to hinder everybody from having money but saints and evangelists, you must give up some profitable partnerships. That's all I can say. Mr. Vincy burst out very bluntly. It may be for the glory of God, but it is not for the glory of the Middlemarch trade that Plymdale's house uses those blue and green dyes it gets from the brassing manufactory. They've wrought the silk. That's all I know about it. Perhaps if other people knew so much of the profit went to the glory of God, they might like it better. But I don't mind so much about that. I could get up a pretty row if I chose. Mr. Bulstrode paused a little before he answered. You pain me very much by speaking in this way, Vincy. I do not expect you to understand my grounds of action. It is not an easy thing even to thread a path for principles in the intricacies of the world, still less to make the thread clear for the careless and the scoffing. You must remember, if you please, that I stretch my tolerance towards you as my wife's brother, and that it little becomes you to complain of me as withholding material help towards the worldly position of your family. I must remind you that it is not your own prudence or judgment that has enabled you to keep your place in the trade. Very likely not. But you have been no loser by my trade yet, said Mr. Vincy, thoroughly nettled, a result which was seldom much retarded by previous resolutions. And when you married Harriet, I don't see how you could expect that our family should not hang by the same nail. If you've changed your mind and want my family to come down in the world, you'd better say so. I've never changed. I'm a plain churchman now, just as I used to be before doctrines came up. I take the world as I find it, in trade and everything else. I'm contented to be no worse than my neighbors. But if you want us to come down in the world, say so. I shall know better what to do then. You talk unreasonably. Shall you come down in the world for want of this letter about your son? Well, whether or not, I consider it very unhandsome of you to refuse it. Such doings may be lined with religion, but outside they have a nasty, dog-in-the-manger look. You might as well slander Fred. It comes pretty near to it when you refuse to say you didn't set a slander going. It's this sort of thing, this tyrannical spirit, wanting to play bishop and banker everywhere. It's this sort of thing that makes a man's name stink. Vincy, if you insist on quarreling with me, it would be exceedingly painful to Harriet, as well as myself, said Mr. Bulstrode, with a trifle more eagerness and paleness than usual. I don't want to quarrel. It's for my interest, and perhaps for yours too, that we should be friends. I bear you no grudge. I think no worse of you than I do of other people. A man who half starves himself and goes the length in family prayers and so on that you do, believes in his religion, whatever it may be, you could turn over your capital just as fast with cursing and swearing. Plenty of fellows do. You like to be master. There's no denying that. You must be first drop in heaven, else you won't like it much. But you're my sister's husband, and we ought to stick together. And if I know Harriet, she'll consider it your fault if we quarrel, because you strain at a gnat in this way, and refuse to do Fred a good turn. And I don't mean to say I shall bear it well. I consider it unhandsome." Mr. Vincy rose, began to button his greatcoat, and looked steadily at his brother-in-law, meaning to apply a demand for a decisive answer. This was not the first time that Mr. Bulstrode had begun by admonishing Mr. Vincy, and it ended by seeing a very unsatisfactory reflection of himself in the coarse, unflattering mirror which that manufacturer's mind presented to the subtler lights and shadows of his fellow men, and perhaps his experience ought to have warned him how the scene would end. But a full-fed fountain will be generous with its waters, even in the rain, when they are worse than useless. 
and a fine fount of admonition is apt to be equally irrepressible. It was not in Mr. Bulstrode's nature to comply directly in consequence of uncomfortable suggestions. Before changing his course, he always needed to shape his motives and bring them into accordance with his habitual standard. He said, at last, "'I will reflect a little, Vincy. I will mention the subject to Harriet. I shall probably send you a letter.' "'Very well. As soon as you can, please.' I hope it will all be settled before I see you tomorrow. Chapter 14 Mr. Bulstrode's consultation of Harriet seemed to have had the effect desired by Mr. Vincey, for early the next morning a letter came which Fred could carry to Mr. Featherstone as a required testimony. The old gentleman was staying in bed on account of the cold weather, and as Mary Garth was not to be seen in the sitting room, Fred went upstairs immediately and presented the letter to his uncle, who, propped up comfortably on a bed rest, was not less able than usual to enjoy his consciousness of wisdom in distrusting and frustrating mankind. He put on his spectacles to read the letter, pursing up his lips and drawing down their corners. Under the circumstances, I will not decline to state my conviction. Tch! What fine words the fellow puts. He's as fine as an auctioneer. That your son, Frederick, has not obtained any advance of money on bequests promised by Mr. Featherstone. Promised? Who said I'd ever promised? I promise nothing. I shall make codicils as long as I like. And that considering the nature of such a proceeding, it is unreasonable to presume that a young man of sense and character would attempt it. Ah, but the gentleman doesn't say you are a young man of sense and character. Mark you that, sir. As to my own concern with any report of such a nature, I distinctly affirm that I never made any statement to the effect that your son had borrowed money on any property that might accrue to him on Mr. Featherstone's demise. Bless my heart. Property. Accrue. Demise. Lawyer Standish is nothing to him. He couldn't speak finer if he wanted to borrow. Well, Mr. Featherstone here looked over his spectacles at Fred while he handed back the letter to him with a contemptuous gesture. You don't suppose I believe a thing because Bulstrode writes it out fine, eh? Fred colored. You wish to have the letter, sir. I should think it very likely that Mr. Bulstrode's denial is as good as the authority which told you what he denies. Every bit. I never said I believed either one or the other. And now, what do you expect? Said Mr. Featherstone, curtly, keeping on his spectacles but withdrawing his hands under his wraps. I expect nothing, sir. Fred with difficulty restrained himself from venting his irritation. I came to bring you the letter. If you like, I will bid you good morning. Not yet, not yet. Ring the bell. I want Missy to come. It was a servant who came in answer to the bell. Tell Missy to come, said Mr. Featherstone impatiently. What business had she to go away? He spoke in the same tone when Mary came. Why couldn't you sit still here till I told you to go? I want my waistcoat now. I told you always to put it on the bed. Mary's eyes looked rather red, as if she had been crying. It was clear that Mr. Featherstone was in one of his most snappish humors this morning, and though Fred had now the prospect of receiving the much-needed present of money, he would have preferred being free to turn round on the old tyrant and tell him that Mary Garth was too good to be at his beck. Though Fred had risen as she entered the room, she had barely noticed him, and looked as if her nerves were quivering with the expectation that something would be thrown at her but she never had anything worse than words to dread. When she went to reach the waistcoat from a peg, Fred went up to her and said, Allow me. Let it alone. You bring it, Missy, and lay it down here, said Mr. Featherstone. 
Now you go away again till I call you, he added, when the waistcoat was laid down by him. It was usual with him to season his pleasure in showing favor to one person by being especially disagreeable to another, and Mary was always at hand to furnish the condiment. When his own relatives came, she was treated better. Slowly he took out a bunch of keys from the waistcoat pocket, and slowly he drew forth a tin box which was under the bedclothes. "'You expect I'm going to give you a little fortune, eh?' he said, looking above his spectacles and pausing in the act of opening the lid. "'Not at all, sir. You were good enough to speak of making me a present the other day, else, of course, I should not have thought of the matter. But Fred was of a hopeful disposition, and a vision had presented itself of a sum just large enough to deliver him from a certain anxiety. When Fred got into debt, it always seemed to him highly probable that something or other, he did not necessarily conceive what,' would come to pass, enabling him to pay in due time. And now that the providential occurrence was apparently close at hand, it would have been sheer absurdity to think that the supply would be short of the need, as absurd as a faith that believed in half a miracle for want of strength to believe in a whole one. The deep-veined hands fingered many banknotes one after the other, laying them down flat again while Fred leaned back in his chair, scorning to look eager. He held himself to be a gentleman at heart, and did not like courting an old fellow for his money. At last, Mr. Featherstone eyed him again over his spectacles and presented him with a little sheaf of notes. Fred could see distinctly that there were but five, as the less significant edges gaped towards him, but then each might mean fifty pounds. He took them, saying, "'I'm very much obliged to you, sir,' and was going to roll them up without seeming to think of their value." This did not suit Mr. Featherstone, who was eyeing him intently. "'Come, don't you think it worth your while to count em? You take money like a lord. I suppose you lose it like one.' "'I thought I was not to look a gift horse in the mouth, sir, but I shall be very happy to count them.' Fred was not so happy, however, after he had counted them, for they actually presented the absurdity of being less than his hopefulness had decided that they must be. What can the fitness of things mean, if not their fitness to a man's expectations? Failing this, absurdity and atheism gaped behind him. The collapse for Fred was severe when he found out that he held no more than five twenties, and his share in the higher education of this country did not seem to help him. Nevertheless, he said, with rapid changes in his fair complexion, it is very handsome of you, sir. I should think it is, said Mr. Featherstone, locking his box and replacing it then taking off his spectacles deliberately, and at length, as if his inward meditation had more deeply convinced him, repeating, I should think it handsome. I assure you, sir, I'm very grateful, said Fred, who had time to recover his cheerful air. So you ought to be. You want to cut a figure in the world, and I reckon Peter Featherstone is the only one you've got to trust to. Here the old man's eyes gleamed with a curiously mingled satisfaction in the consciousness that this smart young fellow relied upon him, and that the smart young fellow was rather a fool for doing so. Yes, indeed, I was not born to very splendid chances. Few men have been more cramped than I've been, said Fred, with some sense of surprise at his own virtue, considering how hardly he was dealt with. It really seems a little too bad to have to ride a broken-winded hunter and see men who are not half such good judges as yourself able to throw away any amount of money on buying bad bargains. Well, you can buy yourself a fine hunter now, Eighty pound is enough for that, I reckon, and you'll have twenty pound over to get yourself out of any little scrape,' said Mr. Featherstone, chuckling slightly. "'You're very good, sir,' said Fred, with the fine sense of contrasts between the words and his feelings. "'Aye, rather a better uncle than your fine Uncle Bulstrode. You won't get much out of his speculations, I think,' 
He's got a pretty strong string round your father's leg, by what I hear, eh? My father never tells me anything about his affairs, sir. Well, he shows some sense there. But other people find him without his telling. He'll never have much to leave you. He'll most like die without a will. He's the sort of man to do it. Let him make him mayor of Middlemarch as much as they like. But you won't get much by his dying without a will, though you are the eldest son. Fred thought that Mr. Featherstone had never been so disagreeable before. True, he'd never before given him quite so much money at once. Shall I destroy this letter of Mr. Bulstrode's, sir? said Fred, rising with the letter as if he would put it in the fire. Aye, aye, I don't want it. It's worth no money to me. Fred carried the letter to the fire and thrust the poker through it with much zest. He longed to get out of the room, but he was a little ashamed before his inner self, as well as before his uncle, to run away immediately after pocketing the money. Presently, the farm bailiff came up to give his master a report, and Fred, to his unspeakable relief, was dismissed with the injunction to come again soon. He had longed not only to be set free from his uncle, but also to find Mary Garth. She was now in her usual place by the fire, with sewing in her hands and a book open on the little table by her side. Her eyelids had lost some of their redness now, and she had her usual air of self-command. "'Am I wanted upstairs?' she said, half-rising as Fred entered. "'No, I'm only dismissed, because Simmons has gone up.' Mary sat down again and resumed her work. She was certainly treating him with more indifference than usual." She did not know how affectionately indignant he had felt on her behalf upstairs. "'May I stay a little, Mary, or shall I bore you?' "'Pray, sit down,' said Mary. "'You will not be so heavy a bore as Mr. John Wall, who was here yesterday, and he sat down without asking my leave.' "'Poor fellow. I think he's in love with you.' "'I'm not aware of it. To me, it is one of the most odious things in a girl's life, that there must always be some supposition of falling in love coming between her and any man who's kind to her.' and to whom she is grateful. I should have thought that I, at least, might have been safe from all that. I have no ground for the nonsensical vanity of fancying everybody who comes near me is in love with me. Mary did not mean to betray any feeling, but in spite of herself, she ended in a tremulous tone of vexation. Confound John Wall! I did not mean to make you angry. I didn't know you had any reason for being grateful to me. I forgot what a great service you think it if anyone snuffs a candle for you. Fred also at his pride, and was not going to show that he knew what had called forth this outburst of Mary's. "'Oh, I'm not angry, except at the ways of the world. I do like to be spoken to as if I had common sense. I really often feel as if I could understand a little more than I ever hear, even from young gentlemen who have been to college.' Mary had recovered, and she spoke with the suppressed rippling undercurrent of laughter, pleasant to hear. "'I don't care how merry you are at my expense this morning,' said Fred." I thought you looked so sad when you came upstairs. It is a shame you should stay here to be bullied in that way. Oh, I have an easy life by comparison. I have tried being a teacher, and I'm not fit for that. My mind is too fond of wandering on its own way. I think any hardship is better than pretending to do what one is paid for and never really doing it. Everything here I can do as well as anyone else could. Perhaps better than some. Rosie, for example. Though she is just the sort of beautiful creature that is imprisoned with ogres and fairy tales. Rosie! cried Fred in a tone of profound brotherly skepticism. Come, Fred, said Mary emphatically. You have no right to be so critical. Do you mean anything particular just now? No, I mean something general. Always. Oh, that I am idle and extravagant. Well, I'm not fit to be a poor man. 
I shall not have made a bad fellow if I have been rich. You would have done your duty in that state of life to which it has not pleased God to call you, said Mary, laughing. Well, I couldn't do my duty as a clergyman any more than you could do yours as a governess. You ought to have a little fellow feeling there, Mary. I never said you ought to be a clergyman. There are other sorts of work. It seems to me very miserable not to resolve on some course and act accordingly. So I could, if... Fred broke off and stood up, leaning against the mantelpiece. If you were sure you should not have a fortune? I did not say that. You want to quarrel with me. It is too bad of you to be guided by what other people say about me. How can I want to quarrel with you? I should be quarreling with all my new books, said Mary, lifting the volume on the table. However naughty you may be to other people, you're good to me. Because I like you better than anyone else. But I know you despise me. Yes, I do. A little, said Mary, nodding with a smile. You would admire a stupendous fellow who would have wise opinions about everything. Yes, I should. Mary was sewing swiftly and seemed provokingly mistress of the situation. When a conversation has taken a wrong turn for us, we only get farther and farther into the swamp of awkwardness. This was what Fred Vincy felt. I suppose a woman is never in love with anyone she's always known, ever since she can remember, as a man often is. It is always some new fellow who strikes a girl. Let me see, said Mary, the corners of her mouth curling archly. I must go back on my experience. There's Juliet. She seems an example of what you say. But then Ophelia had probably known Hamlet a long while. And Brenda Troyle? She had known Mordon Merton ever since they were children. Then he seems to have been an estimable young man. And Minna was still more deeply in love with Cleveland, who was a stranger. Waverly was new to Flora MacIver, but then she did not fall in love with him. Then there are Olivia and Sophia Primrose, and Corin. They may be said to have fallen in love with new men. Altogether, my experience is rather mixed. Mary looked up with some roguishness at Fred, and that look of hers was very dear to him, though the eyes were nothing more than clear windows where observation sat laughingly. He was certainly an affectionate fellow, and as he had grown from boy to man, he had grown in love with his old playmate, notwithstanding that share in the higher education of the country which had exalted his views of rank and income. When a man is not loved, it is no use for him to say that he could be a better fellow. Could do anything, I mean, if he were sure of being loved in return. None of the least used in the world for him to say he could be better. Might, could, would. They are contemptible auxiliaries. I don't see how a man is to be good for much, unless he has some one woman to love him dearly. I think the goodness should come before he expects that. You know better, Mary. Women don't love men for their goodness. Perhaps not. But if they love them... They never think them bad. It is hardly fair to say I'm bad. I said nothing at all about you. I shall never be good for anything. Mary, if you will not say that you love me, if you will not promise to marry me, I mean, when I'm able to marry. If I did love you, I would not marry you. I would certainly not promise ever to marry you. I think that's quite wicked, Mary. If you love me, you ought to promise to marry me. On the contrary, I think it would be wicked in me to marry you even if I did love you. You mean, just as I am, without any means of maintaining a wife, 
course. I am but three and twenty. In that last point, you will alter, but I'm not so sure of any other alteration. My father says an idle man ought not to exist, much less be married. Then I am to blow my brains out? No. On the whole, I should think you would do better to pass your examination. I've heard Mr. Fairbrother say it is disgracefully easy. That is all very fine. Anything is easy to him. Not that cleverness has anything to do with it. I'm ten times cleverer than many men who pass. Dear me, said Mary, unable to repress her sarcasm. That accounts for the curates like Mr. Krauss. Divide your cleverness by ten, and the quotient, dear me, is able to take a degree. But that only shows you are ten times more idle than the others. Well, if I did pass, you would not want me to go into the church? That is not the question, what I want you to do. You have a conscience of your own, I suppose. There. There's Mr. Lydgate. I must go and tell my uncle. Mary, said Fred, seizing her hand as she rose. If you will not give me some encouragement, I shall get worse instead of better. I will not give you any encouragement, said Mary, reddening. Your friends would dislike it, and so would mine. My father would think it a disgrace to me if I accepted a man who got into debt and would not work. Fred was stung and released her hand. She walked to the door, but there she turned and said, Fred, you have always been so good, so generous to me. I am not ungrateful, but never speak to me in that way again. Very well, said Fred, sulkily, taking up his hat and whip. His complexion showed patches of pale pink and dead white. Like many a plucked, idle young gentleman, he was thoroughly in love with a plain girl who had no money. But having Mr. Featherstone's land in the background and a persuasion that, let Mary say what she would, she really did care for him, Fred was not utterly in despair. When he got home, he gave four of the twenties to his mother, asking her to keep them for him. I don't want to spend that money, mother. I want it to pay a debt with, so keep it safe away from my fingers. Bless you, my dear, said Mrs. Vincy. She doted on her eldest son and her youngest girl, a child of six, whom others thought her two naughtiest children. Mother's eyes are not always deceived in their partiality. She at least can best judge who is the tender, filial-hearted child, and Fred was certainly very fond of his mother. Perhaps it was his fondness for another person also that made him particularly anxious to take some security against his own liability to spend the hundred pounds. For the creditor to whom he owed a hundred and sixty held a firmer security in the shape of a bill signed by Mary's father. Chapter 15 A great historian, as he insisted on calling himself, who had the happiness to be dead a hundred and twenty years ago, and so to take his place among the colossi whose huge legs our living pettiness is observed to walk under, glories in his copious remarks and digressions as the least imitable part of his work, and especially in those initial chapters to the successive books of his history, where he seems to bring his armchair to the proscenium and chat with us in all the lusty ease of his fine English. But Fielding lived when the days were longer, for time, like money, is measured by our needs. When summer afternoons were spacious and the clock ticked slowly in the winter evenings, we belated historians must not linger after his example, and if we did so, it is probable that our chat would be thin and eager, as if delivered from a camp stool in a parrot house. I, at least, have so much to do in unraveling certain human lots, and seeing how they were woven and interwoven, that all the light I can command must be concentrated on this particular web, and not dispersed over that tempting range of relevancies called the universe. 
At present, I have to make the new settler, Lydgate, better known to anyone interested in him than he could possibly be even to those who had seen the most of him since his arrival in Middlemarch. For surely all must admit that a man may be puffed and belauded, envied, ridiculed, counted upon as a tool, and fallen in love with, or at least selected as a future husband, and yet remain virtually unknown, known merely as a cluster of signs for his neighbor's false suppositions. There is a general impression, however, that Lydgate was not altogether a common country doctor, and in Middlemarch at that time such an impression was significant of great things being expected from him. For everybody's family doctor was remarkably clever, and was understood to have immeasurable skill in the management and training of the most skittish or vicious diseases. The evidence of his cleverness was of the highest intuitive order, lying in his lady patient's immovable conviction, and was unassailable by any objection, except that their intuitions were opposed by others equally strong. Each lady who saw medical truth in wrench and the strengthening treatment regarded taller and the lowering system as medical perdition. For the heroic times of copious bleeding and blistering had not yet departed, still less the times of thoroughgoing theory, when disease in general was called by some bad name and treated accordingly without shilly-shally. As if, for example, it were to be called insurrection, which must not be fired on with blank cartridge, but have its blood drawn at once. The strengtheners and the lowerers were all clever men, in somebody's opinion, which is really as much as can be said for any living talents. Nobody's imagination had gone so far as to conjecture that Mr. Lydgate could know as much as Dr. Sprague and Dr. Minchin, the two physicians, who alone could offer any hope when danger was extreme, and when the smallest hope was worth a guinea. Still, I repeat, there was a general impression that Lydgate was something rather more uncommon than any general practitioner in Middlemarch. And this was true. He was but seven and twenty, an age at which many men are not quite common, in which they are hopeful of achievement, resolute in avoidance, thinking that mammon shall never put a bit in their mouths and get astride their backs, but rather that mammon, if they have anything to do with him, shall draw their chariot. He'd been left an orphan when he was fresh from a public school. His father, a military man, had made but little provision for three children, and when the boy Tertius asked to have a medical education, it seemed easier to his guardians to grant his request by apprenticing him to a country practitioner than to make any objections on the score of family dignity. He was one of the rarer lads who early got a decided bent and make up their minds that there is something particular in life which they would like to do for its own sake, not because their fathers did it. Most of us who turn to any subject with love remember some morning or evening hour when we got on a high stool to reach down an untried volume, or sat with parted lips listening to a new talker, or for very lack of books began to listen to the voices within as the first traceable beginning of our love. Something of that sort happened to Lydgate. He was a quick fellow, and when hot from play, would toss himself in a corner, and in five minutes be deep in any sort of book that he could lay his hands on. If it were Rasselet or Gulliver, so much the better, but Bailey's Dictionary would do, or the Bible with the Apocrypha in it. Something he must read, when he was not riding the pony, or running and hunting, or listening to the talk of men. All this was true of him at ten years of age. He'd then read through Crystal, or The Adventures of a Guinea, which was neither milk for babes, nor any chalky mixture meant to pass for milk, and it had already occurred to him that books were stuff, and that life was stupid. His school studies had not much modified that opinion, for though he did his classics and mathematics, he was not preeminent in them. It was said of him that Lydgate could do anything he liked, but he had certainly not yet liked to do anything remarkable. 
He was a vigorous animal with a ready understanding, but no spark had yet kindled in him an intellectual passion. Knowledge seemed to him a very superficial affair, easily mastered. Judging from the conversation of his elders, he had apparently got already more than was necessary for mature life. Probably this was not an exceptional result of expensive teaching at that period of short-waisted coats and other fashions which have not yet recurred. But one vacation, a wet day, sent him to the small home library to hunt once more for a book which might have some freshness for him. In vain. Unless, indeed, he took down a dusty row of volumes with grey paperbacks and dingy labels. The volumes of an old cyclopedia, which he had never disturbed, would at least be a novelty to disturb them. They were on the highest shelf, and he stood on a chair to get them down. But he opened the volume which he first took from the shelf. Somehow, one is apt to read in a makeshift attitude, just where it might seem inconvenient to do so. The page he opened on was under the head of anatomy, and the first passage that drew his eyes was on the valves of the heart. He was not much acquainted with valves of any sort, but he knew that valvae were folding doors, and through this crevice came a sudden light startling him with his first vivid notion of finely adjusted mechanism in the human frame. A liberal education had, of course, left him free to read the indecent passages in the school classics, but beyond a general sense of secrecy and obscenity in connection with his internal structure, had left his imagination quite unbiased, so that for anything he knew, his brains lay in small bags at his temples, and he had no more thought of representing to himself how his blood circulated than how paper served instead of gold. But the moment of vocation had come, and before he got down from his chair, the world was made new to him by a presentiment of endless processes filling the vast spaces planked out of his sight by that wordy ignorance which he had supposed to be knowledge. From that hour, Lydgate felt the growth of an intellectual passion. We're not afraid of telling over and over again how a man comes to fall in love with a woman and be wedded to her, or else be fatally parted from her. Is it due to excess of poetry or of stupidity that we are never weary of describing what King James called a woman's mactum and her fairness, never weary of listening to the twanging of the old trapador strings, and are comparatively uninterested in that other kind of mactum and fairness, which must be wooed with industrious thought and patient renunciation of small desires? In the story of this passion, too, the development varies. Sometimes it is the glorious marriage, sometimes frustration and final parting. And not seldom the catastrophe is bound up with the other passion, sung by the trapadors. For in the multitude of middle-aged men who go about their vocations in a daily course, determined for them much in the same way as the tie of their cravats, there is always a good number who once meant to shape their own deeds and alter the world a little. The story of their coming, to be shapen after the average and fit to be packed by the gross, is hardly ever told even in their consciousness. For perhaps their ardor in generous unpaid toil cooled as imperceptibly as the ardor of other youthful loves, till one day their earlier self walked like a ghost in its own home and made the new furniture ghastly. Nothing in the world more subtle than the process of their gradual change. In the beginning they inhaled it unknowingly. You and I may have sent some of our breath towards infecting them when we uttered our comforting falsities or drew our silly conclusions, or perhaps it came with the vibrations from a woman's glance. Lydgate did not mean to be one of those failures, and there was the better hope of him because his scientific interest soon took the form of a professional enthusiasm. He had a youthful belief in his breadwinning work, not to be stifled by that initiation in makeshift called his prentice days, and he carried to his studies in London, Edinburgh, and Paris. 
the conviction that the medical profession, as it might be, was the finest in the world, presenting the most perfect interchange between science and art, offering the most direct alliance between intellectual conquest and the social good. Lydgate's nature demanded this combination. He was an emotional creature, with a flesh-and-blood sense of fellowship which withstood all the abstractions of special study. He cared not only for cases, but for John and Elizabeth. Especially Elizabeth. There was another attraction in his profession. It wanted reform, and gave a man an opportunity for some indignant resolve to reject its venal decorations and other humbug, and to be the possessor of genuine, though undemanded, qualifications. He went to study in Paris with the determination that when he came home again, he would settle in some provincial town as a general practitioner, and resist the irrational severance between medical and surgical knowledge in the interest of his own scientific pursuits, as well as of the general advance. He would keep away from the range of London intrigues, jealousies, and social truckling, and win celebrity, however slowly, as Jenner had done, by the independent value of his work. For it must be remembered that this was a dark period, and in spite of venerable colleges which used great efforts to secure purity of knowledge by making it scarce, and to exclude error by a rigid exclusiveness in relation to fees and appointments, it happened that very ignorant young gentlemen were promoted in town, and many more got a legal right to practice over large areas in the country. Also, the high standard held up to the public mind by the College of Physicians, which gave its peculiar sanction to the expensive and highly rarefied medical instruction obtained by graduates of Oxford and Cambridge, did not hinder quackery from having an excellent time of it. For since professional practice chiefly consisted in giving a great many drugs, the public inferred that it might be better off with more drugs still, if they could only be got cheaply, and hence swallowed large cubic measures of physic prescribed by unscrupulous ignorance, which had taken no degrees. Considering that statistics had not yet embraced the calculation as to the number of ignorant or canting doctors which absolutely must exist in the teeth of all changes, it seemed to Lydgate that a change in the units was the most direct mode of changing the numbers. He meant to be a unit which would make a certain amount of difference towards that spreading change which would one day tell appreciably upon the averages, and in the meantime have the pleasure of making an advantageous difference to the viscera of his own patients. But he did not simply aim at a more genuine kind of practice than was common. He was ambitious of a wider effect. He was fired with the possibility that he might work out the proof of an anatomical conception and make a link in the chain of discovery. Does it seem incongruous to you that a Middlemarch surgeon should dream of himself as a discoverer? Most of us, indeed, know little of the great originators, until they have been lifted up among the constellations and already rule our fates. But that Herschel, for example, who broke the barriers of the heavens, did he not once play a provincial church organ and give music lessons to stumbling pianists? Each of those shining ones had to walk on the earth among neighbors who perhaps thought much more of his gait and his garments than of anything which was to give him a title to everlasting fame. Each of them had its little local personal history sprinkled with small temptations and sordid cares, which made the retarding friction of his course towards final companionship with the immortals. Lydgate was not blind to the dangers of such friction, but he had plenty of confidence in his resolution to avoid it as far as possible. Being seven and twenty, he felt himself experienced, and he was not going to have his vanities provoked by contact with the showy, worldly successes of the capital, but to live among people who could hold no rivalry with that pursuit of a great idea, which was to be a twin object of the assiduous practice of his profession. 
There was fascination in the hope that the two purposes would illuminate each other. The careful observation and inference which was his daily work, the use of the lens to further his judgment in special cases, would further his thought as an instrument of larger inquiry. Was not this the typical preeminence of his profession? He would be a good Middlemarch doctor, and by that very means keep himself in the track of far-reaching investigation. At one point, he may fairly claim approval at this particular stage of his career. He did not mean to imitate those philanthropic models who make a profit out of poisonous pickles to support themselves while they are exposing adulteration, or hold shares in a gambling hell that they might have leisure to represent the cause of public morality. He intended to begin in his own case some particular reforms which were quite certainly within his reach, and much less of a problem than the demonstrating of an anatomical conception. One of these reforms was to act stoutly on the strength of a recent legal decision, and simply prescribe without dispensing drugs or taking percentage from druggists. This was an innovation for those who had chosen to adopt the style of general practitioner in a country town, and would be felt as offensive criticism by his professional brethren. But Lydgate meant to innovate in his treatment also, and he was wise enough to see that the best security for his practicing honestly, according to his belief, was to get rid of systematic temptations to the contrary. Perhaps that was a more cheerful time for observers and theorizers than the present. We're apt to think of the finest era of the world when America was beginning to be discovered, when a bold sailor, even if he were wrecked, might alight on a new kingdom. In about 1829, the dark territories of pathology were a fine America for a spirited young adventurer. Lydgate was ambitious, above all, to contribute towards enlarging the scientific, rational basis of his profession. The more he became interested in special questions of disease, such as the nature of fever or fevers, the more keenly he felt the need for that fundamental knowledge of structure, which, just at the beginning of the century, had been illuminated by the brief and glorious career of Bichat, who died when he was only one and thirty, but, like another Alexander, left a realm large enough for many heirs. That great Frenchman first carried out the conception that living bodies, fundamentally considered, are not associations of organs which can be understood by studying them first apart, and then as it were federally, but must be regarded as consisting of certain primary webs or tissues, out of which the various organs, brain, heart, lungs, and so on, are compacted, as the various accommodations of a house are built up in various proportions of wood, iron, stone, brick, zinc, and the rest, each material having its peculiar composition and proportions. No man, one sees, can understand and estimate the entire structure or its parts, what are its frailties and what its repairs, without knowing the nature of the materials. And the conception wrought out by Bichat, with his detailed study of the different tissues, acted necessarily on medical questions as the turning of gaslight would act on a dim oil-lit street, showing new connections and hitherto hidden facts of structure, which must be taken into account in considering the symptoms of maladies and the action of medicaments. But results which depend on human conscience and intelligence work slowly, and now at the end of 1829, most medical practice was still strutting or shambling along the old paths, and there was still scientific work to be done, which might have seemed to be a direct sequence of Bichat's. This great seer did not go beyond the consideration of the tissues as ultimate facts in the living organism, marking the limit of anatomical analysis. But it was open to another mind to say, have not these structures some common basis from which they have all started, as your SARS net, gauze net, satin, and velvet from the raw cocoon? Here would be another light, as of oxyhydrogen, 
showing the very grain of things and revising all former explanations. Of this sequence to Bichat's work, already vibrating along many currents of the European mind, Lydgate was enamored. He longed to demonstrate the more intimate relations of living structure, and helped to define men's thought more accurately after the true order. The work had not yet been done, but only prepared for those who knew how to use the preparation. What was the primitive tissue? In that way, Lydgate put the question, not quite in the way required by the awaiting answer, but such missing of the right word befalls many seekers, and he counted on quiet intervals to be watchfully seized for taking up the threads of investigation, on many hints to be won from diligent application, not only of the scalpel, but of the microscope, which research had begun to use again with new enthusiasm of reliance. Such was Lydgate's plan of his future, to do good, small work for Middlemarch, and great work for the world. He was certainly a happy fellow at this time, to be seven and twenty, without any fixed vices, with a generous resolution that his action should be beneficent, and with ideas in his brain that made life interesting, quite apart from the cultists of horseflesh and other mystic rites of costly observance, which the eight hundred pounds left him after buying his practice would certainly not have gone far in paying for. He was at a starting point which makes many a man's career a fine subject for betting, if there were any gentleman given to that amusement who could appreciate the complicated probabilities of an arduous purpose all the possible thwartings and furtherings of circumstance, all the niceties of inward balance, by which a man swims and makes his point, or else is carried headlong. The risk would remain even with close knowledge of Lydgate's character, for character too is a process and an unfolding. The man was still in the making, as much of the Middlemarch doctor and immortal discoverer, and there were both virtues and faults capable of shrinking or expanding. The faults will not, I hope, be a reason for the withdrawal of your interest in him. Among our valued friends, is there not someone or other who is a little too self-confident and disdainful, whose distinguished mind is a little spotted with commonness, who's a little pinched here and protuberant there with native prejudices, or whose better energies are liable to lapse down the wrong channel under the influences of transient solicitations? All these things might be alleged against Lydgate, but then... They are the paraphrases of a polite preacher who talks of Adam, and would not like to mention anything painful to the pew-renters. The particular faults from which these delicate generalities are distilled have distinguishable physiognomies, diction, accent, and grimaces, filling up parts in very various dramas. Our vanities differ as our noses do. All conceit is not the same conceit, but varies in correspondence with the minutiae of mental make in which one of us differs from another. Lydgate's conceit was of the arrogant sort, never simpering, never impertinent, but massive in its claims and benevolently contemptuous. He would be a great deal for noodles, being sorry for them and feeling quite sure that they could have no power over him. He had thought of joining the St. Simonians when he was in Paris in order to turn them against some of their own doctrines. All his faults were marked by kindred traits and were those of a man who had a fine baritone, whose clothes hung well upon him and who even in his ordinary gestures had an air of inbred distinction. Where then lay the spots of commonness, says a young lady enamored of that careless grace? How could there be any commonness in a man so well-bred, so ambitious of social distinction, so generous and unusual in his views of social duty? As easily as there may be stupidity in a man of genius if you take him unawares on the wrong subject, or as many a man who has the best will to advance the social millennium might be ill-inspired, in imagining its lighter pleasures, unable to go beyond Offenbach's music, 
the brilliant punning in the last burlesque. Lydgate's spots of commonness lay in the complexion of his prejudices, which, in spite of noble intention and sympathy, were half of them such as are found in ordinary men of the world. That distinction of mind which belonged to his intellectual ardor did not penetrate his feeling and judgment about furniture or women or the desirability of its being known without his telling that he was better born than other country surgeons. He did not mean to think of furniture at present, but whenever he did so it was to be feared that neither biology nor schemes of reform would lift him above the vulgarity of feeling that there would be an incompatibility in his furniture not being of the best. As to women, he had once already been drawn headlong by impetuous folly, which he meant to be final, since marriage at some distant period would of course not be impetuous. For those who want to be acquainted with Lydgate, it will be good to know what was that case of impetuous folly, for it may stand as an example of the fitful swerving of passion to which he was prone, together with the chivalrous kindness which helped to make him morally lovable. The story can be told without many words. It happened when he was studying in Paris, and just at the time when, over and above his other work, he was occupied with some galvanic experiments. One evening, tired with his experimenting, and not being able to elicit the facts he needed, he left his frogs and rabbits to some repose under their trying and mysterious dispensation of unexplained shocks, and went to finish his evening at the theatre of the Port St. Martin, where there was a melodrama which he had already seen several times. Attracted, not by the ingenious work of the collaborating authors, but by an actress whose part it was to stab her lover, mistaking him for the evil-designing duke of the peace. Lydgate was in love with this actress, as a man is in love with a woman whom he never expects to speak to. She was a Provencale, with dark eyes, a Greek profile, and rounded majestic form, having that sort of beauty which carries a sweet matronliness even in youth, and her voice was a soft cooing. She had but lately come to Paris and bore a virtuous reputation, her husband acting with her as the unfortunate lover. It was her acting which was no better than it should be, but the public was satisfied. Lydgate's only relaxation now was to go and look at this woman, just as he might have thrown himself under the breath of the sweet south of a bank of violets for a while, without prejudice to his galvanism, to which he would presently return. But this evening the old drama had a new catastrophe. At the moment when the heroine was to act the stabbing of her lover, and he was to fall gracefully, the wife veritably stabbed her husband, who fell as death willed. A wild shriek pierced the house, and the Provencal fell swooning. A shriek and a swoon were demanded by the play, but the swooning too was real this time. Lydgate leaped and climbed, he hardly knew how, onto the stage and was active in help, making the acquaintance of his heroine by finding a contusion on her head and lifting her gently in his arms. Paris rang with the story of this death. Was it a murder? Some of the actress's warmest admirers were inclined to believe in her guilt and liked her the better for it. Such was the taste of those times, but Lydgate was not one of these. He vehemently contended for her innocence, and the remote, impersonal passion for her beauty, which he had felt before, had passed now into personal devotion and tender thought of her lot. The notion of murder was absurd. No motive was discoverable, the young couple being understood to dote on each other, and it was not unprecedented that an accidental slip of the foot should have brought these grave consequences. The legal investigation ended in Madame Lore's release. Lydgate by this time had had many interviews with her and found her more and more adorable. She talked little, but that was an additional charm. She was melancholy and seemed grateful. Her presence was enough, like that of the evening light. 
Lydgate was madly anxious about her affection, and jealous lest any other man than himself should win it and ask her to marry him. But instead of reopening her engagement at the Port St. Martin, where she would have been all the more popular for the fatal episode, she left Paris without warning, forsaking her little court of admirers. Perhaps no one carried inquiry far except Lydgate, who felt that all science had come to a standstill while he imagined the unhappy lore, stricken by ever-wandering sorrow, herself wandering and finding no faithful comforter. Hidden actresses, however, are not so difficult to find as some other hidden facts, and it was not long before Lydgate gathered indications that Lore had taken the route to Lyons. He found her at last acting with great success at Avignon under the same name, looking more majestic than ever as a forsaken wife carrying her child in her arms. He spoke to her after the play, was received with the usual quietude which seemed to him beautiful as clear depths on water, and obtained leave to visit her the next day when he was bent on telling her that he adored her and on asking her to marry him. He knew that this was like the sudden impulse of a madman, incongruous even with his habitual foibles. No matter. It was the one thing which he resolved to do. He had two selves within him, apparently, and they must learn to accommodate each other and bear reciprocal impediments. Strange that some of us, with quick alternate vision, see beyond our infatuations, and even while we rave on the heights, Behold the wide plain where our persistent self pauses and awaits us. But approach Lore with any suit that was not reverentially tender would have been simply a contradiction of his whole feeling towards her. "'You've come all the way from Paris to find me?' she said to him the next day, sitting before him with folded arms and looking at him with eyes that seemed to wander as an untamed ruminating animal wanders. "'Are all Englishmen like that?' "'I came because I could not live without trying to see you.' You're lonely. I love you. I want you to consent to be my wife. I will wait, but I want you to promise that you will marry me. No one else. Lord looked at him in silence, with a melancholy radiance from under her grand eyelids, till he was full of rapturous certainty, and knelt close to her knees. I will tell you something, she said, in her cooing way, keeping her arms folded. My foot really slipped. I know. I know, said Lydgate, deprecatingly. It was a fatal accident, a dreadful stroke of calamity that bound me to you the more. Again, Laura paused a little and then said slowly, I meant to do it. Lydgate, strong man as he was, turned pale and trembled. Moments seemed to pass before he rose and stood at a distance from her. There was a secret then, he said at last, even vehemently. He was brutal to you. You hated him. No. He wearied me. He was too fond. He would live in Paris and not in my country. That was not agreeable to me. Great God, said Lydgate in a groan of horror. And you planned to murder him? I did not plan. It came to me in the play. I meant to do it. Lydgate stood mute and unconsciously pressed his hat on while he looked at her. He saw this woman first to whom he had given his young adoration, made the throng of stupid criminals. "'You are a good young man,' she said. "'But I do not like husbands. I will never have another.'" Three days afterwards, Lydgate was at his galvanism again in his parish chambers, believing that illusions were at an end for him. He was saved from hardening effects by the abundant kindness of his heart and his belief that human life might be made better. But he had more reason than ever for trusting his judgment— 
now that it was so experienced, and henceforth he would take a strictly scientific view of woman, entertaining no expectations but such as were justified beforehand. No one in Middlemarch was likely to have such a notion of Lydgate's past as has here been faintly shadowed, and indeed the respectable townsfolk there were not more given than mortals generally to any eager attempt at exactness and the representation to themselves of what did not come under their own senses, and not only young virgins of that town, but grey-bearded men also were often in haste to conjecture how a new acquaintance might be wrought into their purposes, contented with very vague knowledge as to the way in which life has been shaping him for that instrumentality. Middlemarch, in fact, counted on swallowing Lydgate and assimilating him very comfortably. And that concludes today's episode. Again, as a general reminder, I do have a Patreon. If you want to help keep episodes ad-free, I would suggest subscribing there. I am on all podcast platforms, so if you don't like the one you're listening on, you can always find another one. I am on most of the major ones by now. And again, I am affiliated with Drink Poggers, so if you want an energy drink that will make you pog, you can go to drinkpoggers.com slash N-Y-M-G-O-A-T for 10% off your order. Thanks. Have a great day, everybody. I'll see you next week.